Galaxy Podcast. It's great to have you here for a special episode. I'm in Austin, Texas, and I'm joined by a friend. Uh, Glenn, though, is where he normally is, and uh, we've got a special subject uh, that we're going to be addressing today. Uh, but before we introduce that, let me introduce myself. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest, and I've written some books, and every once in a while I go out and speak at conferences, and that's what I'm doing here in Austin, Texas. Anyway, having a great time, eating barbecue and hanging out with friends. And enough about me. How about you, Glenn? Introduce yourself again. I'm Glenn Sunshine, retired history professor, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries, freelance teacher, author, and a bunch of other things. All right. And our special guest today is Garrett Crawford. So, Garrett, why don't you introduce yourself, and then we'll get into the subject of the day. Yeah, I'm a senior pastor of King's Cross Reformed Church. Uh, it's, uh, we call it South Austin, but actually we're in Buda, Texas. And this is my third church plan. Well, that's, uh, that gives you a great body of experience, Garrett, to get into the subject uh, that we want to get into, and that is uh, the nature of the church growth movement, its sort of manifestation in, I would say, you know, the, the really strong impulse to plant churches that we see in the United States, which is a positive thing, uh, and, you know, just generally around the world, but I'm thinking primarily in the Western world, uh, United States, Europe, and so forth. Uh, but also, um, some of the perhaps uh, things that have occurred that are not so great because of the influence of the church growth movement. Um, it's kind of a truism, almost cliche, that you have, say, a church in, I don't know, uh, Tubunk, Iowa, and the pastor, uh, comes into the church, he's fresh out of seminary, and the church has been around for, I don't know, 100, 150 years, and he, he comes in and, and says, you know, in effect, you people are out of touch, uh, we need to completely rework this thing from the bottom up, we're going to have a second service with a whole different kind of approach, uh, and over the course of time, uh, he effectively kills a healthy church. I can't tell you the number of times I've seen that. Um, all in the name of church growth. And it usually is precipitated by a church growth conference. He goes to a church growth conference. And, and basically at that church growth conference, he, just, he, he learns that it's the opinions of the, uh, of the reprobate that matter. And it, the opinions of faithful, you know, church members who have been uh, supportive of the ministry of a church for decades uh, don't matter. In fact, not only don't they matter, they're the problem. Uh, and like I said, I've seen this so many times, it's cliche. But I'd like to step back and just think a little bit about what is the kind of uh, outlook that makes this even feasible, or at least plausible. And uh, it's led to so many people you know, sort of going down that path. Here's, here's a take that I'd like to get your thought on, Garrett. In the 1970s and in the, in the early 1980s, Fuller Theological Seminary established a, you know, sort of very aggressive uh, approach to promoting church uh, growth, uh, started by people, people like Donald McGavern, uh, Peter Wagner, John Wimber, that crowd. And on the surface, it seemed uh, sort of legit because what, what they did is, first of all, they, they, they said, let's take a look at social science, social sciences, and, and study how people movements occur, why people do the things that they do, what are the barriers that get in the way of people coming to faith in Christ. And largely, these are people who are coming out of world missions, right? People like McGavern, right, and Wagner. Not so with John Wimper, but these other guys are coming out of world missions, and they're, and they're, and they're also enthusiastic for uh, something known as contextualization. The idea being that, okay, here's a culture that is a non-Western culture, has not had the leavening influence of Christianity. Uh, there are ways people think in this particular culture, the ways people behave. Uh, we can work with these things. Perhaps, you know, in the spirit of Don Richardson, we can find, you know, that 
peace child motif that opens eyes and helps people see the truth of the gospel, eternity in their hearts, you know, that sort of thing. And so far, so good. There's nothing, I think, uh, really uh, you know, objectionable about any of that. But they uncritically, this is my take, uncritically applied those uh, approaches to the Western world. And the huge difference, and this is my opinion, the huge difference between what was being done in, say, Africa or Southeast Asia or whatever, uh, and the United States is the United States is a post-Christian uh, country. And we don't live in a culture, we almost live in an anti-culture. This is a culture of death. We see decay all around us. We see insanity, you know, just uh, streaming through social media all the time. Uh, we see the influence of explicitly, self-consciously anti-Christian philosophies in academia and in polit the political realm. You cannot contextualize to that. That's my critique. If you try, you incorporate death into the church. You bring it in. So uh, I've pitched that fastball at you, Garrett. <laughs> I'd like to see how you swing. <laughs> Actually, I, I would like to take a swing first, if I may. Sure. Ju just a little bit of background on McGavran. What he did is he went to India and he looked at, you know, there, there were places where missions were occurring for decades, actually in some places centuries, and with virtually no result. There were other places where the gospel took off. And he asked the question, what's the difference? And the difference he concluded is that the gospel is best presented by people either from the culture or from a culture that is close to the target culture. That, that they are more effective at bringing the gospel into those communities because they understand how they work and so on. Uh, that's the issue of contextualization. Now, the problem with the church growth movement, it seems to me, uh, I would actually take it a step back from where you identify it, that we're trying to apply this thing in a post-Christian world where there really aren't a lot of direct connections to Christianity that you can draw from to help people understand the gospel. Uh, that's something we could talk more about. But I think the bigger problem came in that they decided that what contextualization means in the United States was aiming to a particular socioeconomic and cultural group. And of course, what ends up happening under those circumstances is ambitious pastors aim for upper middle class whites, which is where you get the megachurch phenomenon and all that. And it does work to bring in numbers, but it is not good at building deep discipleship and I would argue and have argued right from when it first came out that it is a fundamental contradiction of the gospel, which is supposed to bring people together who are different. The real glory of the gospel is that it unites people who don't have things in common otherwise. You know, Jew and Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. So that's where I think the problem starts. When you move it into the post-Christian culture we're in now, it just makes it even worse. Yeah, one of the classic, uh, con you know, sort of critiques of the church growth movement was the homogeneous unit principle, and you got at that. But Garrett, yeah, well, actually, I, I did part of my seminary education at, at Fuller. You survived, um, yeah, yeah. Back and when it was still a Christian institution. Yeah, yeah. I went there actually in the early '90s. I had Richard Muller for a systematic, so yeah, there's there some good things about it, but. Uh, but back to the to the question, I think uh, I think what happened with church growth and and that mixing in with the, the church plant movement was it's sort of like a tree, and they and they started utilizing all these means and over time all these these means uh, marketing etc. Trying to figure out what people want, um, they end up being the whole issue, and if uh, they forgot how to be a church, like like a lot of times if you look at uh, modern churches that are, when they're planted, I've, I've met lots of church planters. Uh, and broad evangelicalism, they're very thin on ecclesiology. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't. They don't. I mean, if you ask them, they have a hard time really giving you a cogent definition of what is the church and what's the central mission of the church and, and what what does the church do that's unique to, to all the other institutions. And they talk about a culture of death too. Uh, there's this this iconoclastic impulse. If you notice, even with uh, church architecture, everything's got to be stripped down to its minimum. 
And I, I think the church is really more of a, a broad, at times from the outside, kind of messy looking tapestry, but those things actually have symbolic meaning to us. And you hollow that out. And basically you have, you have something that, that's not that much different than, than any, anything else you might have in your community, a library or a Home Depot. That's why churches look like that. It's communicating what they believe. Yeah, and there's a whole set of things we could get into there, and I'd love to do this, uh, to, to do that. So, like you said, um, I've seen churches where, you know, you have this beautiful, uh, you know, uh, building that reflects uh, theological, theologically rich understanding of, of the world and of the gospel, stripped down uh like you said, iconoclastic uh, character. This is this iconoclastic character to these things, uh, so that we can actually make it look more like Home Depot. Yeah. After all, that's what people are comfortable with. Rather than doing the difficult work of pointing things out to folks and saying, you know, this is what this means. Um, it's it's like a visual word. <laughs> you know, we we uh, we shouldn't play around with this. We should we should just do the hard work of actually helping people understand. Uh, what it's what these things uh, are intended to, to say. Another thing too, I think that uh, kind of goes along with this is there's a tendency to conflate um, marketing and worship. Uh, to conflate, um, and this is going to sound, uh, I think, mis- I, this is a, this could be taken in the wrong way, but let me put it just. You know, forthrightly, confusing, uh, say, street preaching and worship. Uh, so the assumption is that what's going on in a worship service is not uh, the people of God worshiping. It's a gathering of as many uh, unchurched people as we can get so that we can preach the gospel to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you see this. As well, if you go on to random, uh, you know, church plants, and then they grow into uh, large evangelical megachurches. But there's this reticence to use the word church. You're constantly using the, the term gathering. Yeah. And um, the gathering is not unique. I, I can do that with, with all kinds of people. I can gather with uh, Buddhists. I can gather with the Elks Lodge. Right. But the church is the church. The church is unique, and the church does a very unique things. There's the word and sacrament is only brought forth in the church of God, the body of Christ. And I, I think that something that's rather disturbing about this is uh, the fact that we've we've gotten all these marketing tools, but we've forgotten that we're the church. And if you think about any other enterprise that you would engage in, you have a, a central product or a service. You know about that, right? But um, but people know all about how to market the church, um, how to gather a group of people, and but they don't know how to be the church, right? right. And so that's that's a huge problem. Yeah, there's the ecclesiology, but even we think about the proclamation of the gospel. So we know something other people don't. That's why we proclaim something that they need to hear, <laughs> right? It's not as though we spend up, we, we should think of ourselves as maybe, a, I don't know, a focus group where we're all trying to figure out what do people want. So this gets us back to, say, the seeker-sensitive phenomenon in the 1990s with Bill Hybels and, you know, Willow Creek and all of that. And, you know, the way Bill began is he went door to door with a, you know, a clipboard and ask people, you know, basically who don't have any church, you know, background, uh, what are you looking for in a church? And then uh, based on, you know, that, that the data, he uh, gave them what they wanted. And to, to the surprise of nobody except maybe Bill Hybels and his staff, after they had gathered thousands of people uh, in that congregation, they did a survey on sort of basic Christian knowledge and wouldn't you know it, uh, it was pretty thin. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't yeah. know much. Um, they knew that maybe God loved them. Uh, maybe they knew that, uh, you know, uh, the things that maybe the Bible has to say should connect to their life, but they just didn't know much. And that began a process of sort of felt that sort of reevaluating their whole approach I don't know where things stand now. I mean, there's been some controversy there, and I don't keep up with it. But um, the whole the whole uh, phenomenon uh, struck me as being pragmatic in the, in the worst sense. Um, and there's a sense in which we have to be 
realistic and work with the situation on the ground. It's not like if I were to go to Japan and uh, just refuse to learn Japanese that I could actually have a ministry. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, you got to be realistic. But at the same time, uh, we need to acknowledge or sort of affirm that there are certain things that we have that people need. And uh, we need to recover an ap- a sense of apostolic confidence. Yeah, so I anyway, would, yeah, I would add that, you know, you talk about bringing them in to preach the gospel to them. I question whether that's what was actually being done in many cases. Yeah. Um, I've, I've run into a lot of so-called sermons that were little more than TED Talks right. aimed, at, um, at, aimed at people's felt needs and things like that without addressing their deepest need, uh, which is the problem of sin in their lives. Uh, without addressing repentance, without addressing, you know, Jesus as the substitutionary atonement for our sins. These these things, well, you know, Paul talked about the offense of the cross. It's still an offense today. And in a lot of cases, all too many cases, many of these churches seem to me to be embarrassed about that. Yeah. The last thing they want to do is offend somebody. Yeah, Yeah, uh, uh, I I mean, we kind of talk about this in our circles a little bit, but uh, we call ourselves finder sensitive, not seeker sensitive. (laughs) Um, I mean, because that's the end of the process. People, you know, Christ moves on people, they seek, they find, they end up in the church. um, And at the end of the day, we're planting planting churches. And we shouldn't be afraid of of, of utilizing good tools because the the reaction against us, I've seen this out there a lot doing conferences and and whatnot, is um, people get hyperpietistic. And they want to plant churches on, on just prayer and piety without having any planning. And I think you should have a well-planned, well-executed church plan and, and utilize tools like marketing. But the difference is, you know what you want to do beforehand. You, you know what the church will look like. You know how you want to execute that. You know what, what kind of ecclesiastical structure you're going to have. And then you use marketing to figure out how to uh, draw people into that. You don't go out and ask people what they want and then market and adjust to that thing, but rather utilize those tools in order to maximize the way to, to reach people with what you already believe. Yeah. Well, I mean, here we are, you know, just so folks know, you and I are actually sitting across the table from each other so we can actually see each other uh, physically. But folks who are uh, watching uh, the video on YouTube or uh, Spotify can see you've got a clerical collar on yeah. and a very large cross around your neck. It's a Celtic cross, cross on Gladys City. But anyway, this is... Uh, something that doesn't necessarily seek or it doesn't express a, a, a desire to blend in. Yeah. This is, yeah. This is, <laughs> I actually got an interesting story about how this all happened. Yeah, yeah, please, because it's this is about standing out. Yeah, uh, I'm, I was a church planner in, in Southern California, and uh, I didn't I didn't want to blend in. I wanted to use actually my persona as, as a billboard. And uh, the reason why I wear a cross I've actually served, you know, in leadership position as a presiding minister in my denomination, but sometimes I'll get uh, people in other denominations, only bishops who wear the cross. Well, in Southern California, you will find people with other religions wearing a similar type of shirt, and I've run into Buddhists who would wear something similar. Interesting. And I used to get this question a lot. You're some kind of a minister. What religion are you? Yeah. So I started wearing the cross, and particularly after the uh, Obergefell um, decision came down. Yeah, I decided it's like you know, what's the sense of hiding anyway? Yeah, right. just get right out there, and yeah. you know, people are looking for spiritual help, and they they see you, and they're they're drawn to that. There's no question on what your occupation is. So yeah. Now related to that, you know, we have mainline folks who love to dress up and yeah. wear clerical garb, um, and sometimes uh, you know, I've heard ministers say, you know, in the Protestant world, I'm not going to use these uh, because I don't want to be confused with, you know, the LGBTQ, you know, UCC gal yeah. or gal down the street because they get the, uh, you know, in, in dressed up this way. What, what's your take on that? Well, a couple of things. One is I actually uh, uh, did a lot of the research as a background on the uh, Wikipedia page on, on clergy wear. Yeah. This is, this is our collar in the reform world. Yeah. Um, this was actually popularized by Reverend McLeod, who oh, um, was, was the moderator of the Scottish Presbyterian Church around 1870 or so. Um, so when you see the tab collar, that's uniquely Catholic. The band right. collar is uniquely Protestant and uh, Presbyterian. And I feel like it's something similar to, like, say, the word Catholic. Yeah. Or yeah. utilization of certain terminology in the creed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to be non-offensive. We don't want people to take things the wrong way. And so we adjust to that. And I feel like, why don't we just 
adopt it and, and reappraise it and, and recapture the meaning to those things. Yeah, we want to lead with it. So uh, basically, uh, we don't want our words and our uh, garb or to be reappropriated and used for things that are contrary to their original, original intent. I remember I had a, uh, my ch at the church I served on Cape Cod, I had an assistant pastor who was maybe 30 years older than me, but he was completely uh, bought into this whole thing. And he, he would very self-consciously avoid using churchy talk, yeah. like justification, sanctification. Yeah. Now I'm the younger guy and I'm actually the senior pastor and I say, Jim, why don't we just teach them with those words? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we, give them the word, explain it, and use it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I actually found in my community in Southern California, and I find it in the South here in Texas, too, um, you'll find liberals will uh, they'll wear all this garb for their ceremonies. You know, like you have a, the bishop come and consecrate something, everybody's got all this stuff on. The rest of the time, they're wearing polos. Yeah. I, I, when I first got to, to our community in Southern California, I went around with, and met with all clergy, I met with uh, the Catholic Monsignor, and I noticed that all the, the Catholic priests were wearing polo shirts as well. Interesting. It was just me <laughs> and this other rather large uh, female rector of the local Episcopal church. But uh, Isn't that... Uh, go ahead. <laughs> but I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm totally comfortable with myself, and so sure, sure. Uh, I, I think you cut a, a different jib. But I've had so many experiences where I've had people come up to me, talk yeah. to me, People join the church because yeah. I met them out. In fact, I had one experience where I was in a Starbucks and my assistant pastor and I, we were, we were meeting for coffee. We had our clergy shirts on. A woman came up and asked for prayer. Interesting. Yeah. I had a friend from the PCA who was seated right across that very coffee house. He had on a t-shirt. Yeah. And he had a bunch of books. I think he had Calvin's Institutes in there right. and they were lined up so everybody could read them. <laughs> I think he was using that as his billboard. Right. Well, nobody went up to talk to him. Yeah. Um, we prayed for this woman. Uh, we assisted her. And she became a member of our church. Nice. That's great. And then the other guy was sitting there all the whole time, incognito to some degree. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I find it very helpful. Yeah. Well, that's that's great. Well, one of the can, things. Can I, I point like, out one go thing ahead. here? Yeah. Go ahead. Um, yep. This is something that I I saw actually, I think it was a post on Facebook that I thought was really interesting. When you look at the early Anglican liturgies, um, and actually even the translation of the Bible, it was intentionally done in a somewhat archaic way, even right. in the period. And the reason for that was because it it heightened the language so that worship was recognized as something that was, you know, not just your normal run-of-the-mill thing. That this, yeah. this is something that is special. This is something that's sacred. And I, and I shared this, and I got a lot of pushback on it. But the, the, I, I, as I've been thinking about it, it occurs to me that if we have the heightened language, if you're wearing the collar, if you're doing any of these kinds of things— you're far less likely to end up degenerating into Jesus is my boyfriend songs. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right. It, right. it, it actually preserves, I think, the state, the 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 sense of reverence and awe that's appropriate for worship in church. And this this applies, like I said, to the collar. It applies to the language. It applies to all kinds of things. And, you know, I used to be one of these guys who, who would argue, well, look, the New Testament was written, written in, in street Greek, so we should be translating it that way and using it that way. I'm no longer convinced that that's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I've made the same sort of move in the way I look at things. So one reason I'm very familiar with the church growth movement is because I drank deeply from that spring. I, I know it uh, as a, a true believer uh, would know it. Now... Getting to your point, though, we can even see, uh, I think, a parallel in Tolkien's writing. So if you think about, say, The Hobbit, very avuncular, you know, talking to children, kind of, you know, warm uh, and familiar. Uh, and then you get to The Lord of the Rings. It's got a higher tone, uh, more serious scent of feeling. You get to the Cimmerillion, and you're dealing with scripture, you know, sort of the scripture of Middle Earth. And... There's no pandering. You know, you have to rise to the level of the narr narration. You know? uh, and there's a, there's a sense that these are 
we're dealing with elemental truths, uh, fundamental foundational matters. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned a, a sacred space, uh, Glenn. Um, I, I just wrote a book on, on church planting. Why another book on church planting? Well, as far as I know, I'm the only one that's doing liturgical church planting. Yeah. And at a time and place in which we live, I think Christians need to see sign and symbol. They need sacred space that the world outside is hostile. It's the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. They need to, they need to come inside Tom Bombadil's house for a, a little <laughs> right. while. And I, I think um, having these, as you said, archaic types of things, and I say archaic because if you watch TV or movies today, to this day, you have a pastor in a scene and he's doing a wedding, he's got a collar on. People right. still know that's what, what that a pastor means. looks right. like. Right. And I say rather than jettisoning those things, let's recapture a sense of, uh, of mystery, uh, recapture a sense of sacred space while not losing vibrant preaching of the Word of God. Yeah, yeah. So these things aren't necessarily uh, mutually exclusive. Yeah, right. absolutely. Right. Well, when we think about... Um, the, the, the larger culture that we find ourselves in. I, I think the question that we have to challenge some of this thinking with is just, what do you really make of this culture that we find ourselves in? Do you think that this uh, has got some uh, long-term uh, viability? <laughs> or do you think that we are in a significant period of decline? If we are in a significant period of decline, why? Would you want to structure uh, an approach to eternal things, or you know, using that material? Shouldn't yeah. we be pointing to what comes next? So, what comes next, of course, as Christians we know, is the eschaton. So, we're not talking about locating it on a timeline or anything like that. But we, what we want is something going on on a weekly basis that reflects the end of the world and what's going on in heaven right now, right? So we're participating in things that are not just you know, the mundane, everyday stuff, daily life. We're rising into the heavenly realm, right? You know, when Paul says in Ephesians that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places, he, just, he doesn't say, oh, and that's just Hallmark poetry, I know, I know, and, but, you know, just hang with me, guys. <laughs> you know, say, no, this is really what, this is the reality. What we see around us is the thing that's passing away. So what we want is to incorporate into worship things that are lasting, have some kind of a, a you know, sort of te temporal expression. That's true. I mean, it's not like that particular collar, collar that you're wearing or the cross that's in front of the church. Uh, those particular objects are going to last forever, but they ref, uh, reflect or participate in things that do last forever. You know, yeah, well, with the church having that, that mindset, you know, whenever the church is acting properly, they got their, their eyes on the here and now, but they also have their eyes on the eschaton. But in, in answer to what do you do in a culture like this, uh, where is it going? I, I think I think we're going through some kind of collapse. I don't know what it will look like. Yeah. Um, my gut feeling is historically some kind of fragmentation first, and then something new is going to arise out of that. But what does the church do in the middle of that? They always keep doing what they're doing. They're still yeah. building. So they're moving out of the back room because they can't. They're not going and creating little house churches because that's cool. We can drink Chardonnay. <laughs> they're looking for the opportunity to move into the basilica. Right. And then one day that basilica is going to become a cathedral, and it's going to become the center of culture. Right. And so I, I think we need to live in that manner, keep doing what the church has always done and plan for tomorrow. And we need to be thinking about our kids and grandkids. Yep. Because some of these things, you know, I, I think the fact that Christians have more children. Yep. And if, if Christians are serious and give the kids a good Christian worldview, they're, they're going to be successful. Um, they're going to be optimistic on how they do things. And, and because of that, they could end up taking over the culture. But that'll probably be our, our kids in their late years, maybe our grandkids. Yeah. We won't see it, but we've got to build for it. Yeah, I think that's right. And, what, and kind of the delicious irony to this is that um, you'll have these church planters who are basically trying to make churches that would have been cool in 1978. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And, and, and the kids are actually fascinated with iconography or something like yeah, that. Yeah. You know, they're, right. they're actually uh, longing for... Uh, the richness of the, you know, the medieval world. Yeah. And by the way, this is something that I believe that Lewis and Tolkien were so sharp on. Uh, they they introduced uh, children uh, to a 
way of thinking about things that's more medieval in character than modern. Yeah. And that was exactly what they wanted to do. Yeah. And now we have uh, an appetite for this stuff, like perhaps we didn't see in, say, you know, the 30s and 40s, what we call the good old days. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but now we see a, a hunger for this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I can add that we're in a culture that is no longer word driven, it's image driven. And as a result, I would argue that this extends a lot in a lot of different directions, but I would argue that what we need right now is a whole different way of thinking about apologetics. Um, because word-centered apologetics, uh, linear reasoning, the kinds of evidence that demands a verdict, uh, that kind of stuff, I don't think works with the current generation. They don't think that way. Yeah. We need an apologetic now that is built around beauty and imagination, among other things. Um, and and so what you're talking about with making the church visible, you know, wearing the collar, building churches that are that look like churches that have sacred space in them with with uh, all of the iconography. I'm not necessarily talking Byzantine here, but but that have recognizable symbols of the faith, um, the the visual and tactile elements of of bread and wine and water and oil and all of those things. I think that's what's going to be communicating to this generation because they are no longer the logocentric generation that we grew up in. Well, when I was in Los Angeles, our, our, when we planted our church and. We're fairly high church for a Reformed church. I assumed we'd get a lot of refugees from mainline churches that were middle-aged. It was all young people. Yeah. And a lot of them were refugees, second generation of megachurches that they'd been brought to as kids. And they felt like, is this all there is? Right. And then they, a lot of times they go off to college and maybe they do a, you know, a semester abroad and they go into a cathedral and maybe there's nobody there. But they sense like this place used to be filled and I there's something about this generation's worship the living God here and they come back home and they want more. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think too, you know, to give the word its proper due, when we think about words and information, that's an interesting way of putting it, you know, because today with a very thin uh, understanding of what language actually is, uh, we tend to think of it more or less uh, just as set of arbitrary symbols that a particular culture has decided mean these things. And because of that, uh, we don't think there's much depth to it. But uh, the historic understanding of, of language uh, is that language, in some sense, is a uh, re-sort uh, of speaking or re representation of the lagos, in the sense that all human languages are drawing on the language that brought the world into being. Yeah, yeah. So the physical objects that we see around us are actually instantiations of the word. You know, the word. So you know, lagos, lagoi. So there are the words, you know, and then there is the word, and the, the words have their origin. Word. The speech act theory is a weird thing. Yeah, well, words make things happen. Yeah, and you, you mentioned before, Glenn, about archaisms. I mean, I think it's it's helpful with rhetoric, pastors. Sometimes utilizing archaic language because it's it's very potent. Yeah, and and you know the act of preaching is not simply communication of information, right. nor is it simply um, giving people tools for how to live their life. It's actually coming before the army of God, right, and encouraging them before battle. So, right. Yeah, and related to this, so maybe the thing that you know pastors need to develop is in a more of a poetic sense. Um, I remember when I was in seminary and when I was young. Preacher boy, I don't know if this was your experience, but it I seemed like a preacher boy once. <laughs> <laughs> but it seemed to me that all the young guys were just into Paul and were impatient with wisdom literature. And, yeah, you know, impatient with you know even uh, history in scripture. You got to wrestle with those. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah <laughs> what they wanted was just abstractions, and you, you get to, went to Paul for that. But they weren't even doing Paul justice. You know, Paul uh, had a much richer approach than I think I was. Uh, uh, sort of thinking about when I was studying him as a as a young student, uh, you know, going into the ministry. Um, but you know, when you think about the marvelous hymnody, you think about uh, 
you know, people like obviously Charles Wesley or uh, William Cooper, you know, you're talking about artistry at a, a pretty high level, almost Shakespearean, yeah. you know, uh, and the ability to communicate metaphorically through simile. This is not stuff that many of our schools are encouraging uh, when it comes to preaching, the art of preaching. But I, I can't help but think that uh, this is something we should be champions for. You know, like I think poetry, generally speaking, in the Western world has degenerated to the point where it's just all about me. You know, in other words, why why would I want to read a book about you? You know, and all of your emotions. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'd like to read a book. Well, you think about epic poetry, and you think about you know Virgil or Homer, you know, or even you know Coleridge. You know, they're they're talking about reality. They're not just talking about themselves. They're talking about the world outside their heads. But they believe that the language that they could employ would get you in touch with that world and, uh, and have power for that reason. Anyway. Well, you know, you, tonight at the, the conference, I mean, I wonder how many pastors today are involved in, in structuring the worship service, uh, are familiar with their music yeah. and what it's communicating. But we picked out one of the hymns tonight. It's, it's, gonna, it's actually the Agincourt hymn is the musical uh, score behind it. It was it was a hymn of victory after the Battle of Agincourt. Wow. And um, it's, it's very militant, but it's it's got a 14th century tune behind it. And when it's played on one of those old pump pipe organs, yeah. it, it sounds like knights going to war. But yeah. there's lots of music like that. And I'm, I'm finding a lot of resonance with young people with that kind of thing. These days. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that is, I think hymn singing, I mean, not hymn singing, psalm singing uh, is, is, is uh, growing in popularity. Not that we measure the rightness or wrongness of something necessarily by its popularity, but it is interesting to see that there's a hunger for this. Yeah. Particularly for imprecatory psalms. Yeah. Well, they're good. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I mean, they touch the heart, you know? <laughs> right. Right. That's great stuff. Anyway, so where do you think this is all trending? I mean, you know, as we've talked a little bit, Garrett, I can see that you have an ability to sort of, well, you know, when you eat chicken, you throw away the bones. There are some good things about the church growth movement. Yeah. Uh, there are, we've been focusing on the bones here recently. So uh, what do you think we need to do to sort of encourage other people to think in these terms? Well, one thing I've noticed is uh, that there's a lot more openness with kind of plain rap evangelical church planners uh, to talk with me and others like, like me about these kind of things. They're, they're hungry for it. A lot of times... I'll field questions, you know, with email and stuff like that. And, and one of the questions are, hey, where do I find out about this? Yeah. How do I find out about leading a service? Uh, I don't know anything about um, how, how, what do the sacraments mean? Right. Those, those kind of questions. pretty basic stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're, you're trying to plan a church and you don't know what the sacraments are. Yeah. At least you don't have some kind of the, you know, sort of theology that you believe in. You're just Man. doing it. <laughs> I'll tell you one, one maybe place that was like shocking to me. Looking back on it, it makes sense. But with the strength of a traditional and liturgically oriented church yeah. was in COVID. Got it. Yeah. Because yeah. if you're Protestant, and I thought Catholics would think this way, but they folded pretty quick. Mm. But if you're Protestant and you believe in sacraments and you think they're important, yeah. you're going to meet. Right. You're going to figure it, it doesn't matter. We have, we have to get together. Right. We need to hear the word. Right. We need to have the sacrament of ministry. Right. Yeah. It's been a remarkable thing to reflect on how that whole thing played out, the churches that were most compliant, who led with the thought, you know, this is how we love our neighbor, are the ones that just shriveled and in many cases died. Well, if you're taking communion once a month and yeah. you got the Play-Doh station and the hand painting set up, <laughs> you know, to express yourself, uh, what's what's the reason why church would be vital? Yeah. yeah. And then the churches that were the most, uh, you know, resistant to the to the measures have been, you know, I've been around the country. I know you have wherever I've gone and there's a vibrant church that I'm speaking at. I'll ask, when did it happen? I'll say COVID. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so we, yeah. we just didn't go along. And ever since, you know, our church has literally tripled or something. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So those are some good thoughts when it comes to kind of the trends. So I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm evangelical, but I've got, you know, sort of, uh, fingers uh, in the pie uh, in other places, you know, so I'm not like 
following everything that's going on. Maybe you don't either, but uh, we've kind of thought a little bit about the way things are trending. Um, seems to me that there's kind of a parting of the ways going on, not just over COVID or over LGBTQ or whatever, you know, but uh, about this very thing we're talking about. Um, there are people who seem to believe that we need to go even further when it comes to accommodating the culture. And then there are others who think, no, we need to provide a, an alternative or the truth, uh, more than an echo uh, of what's going on around us. Yeah. 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 So can you give me any thoughts on what, if, do I have it right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I, th I think Aaron Wren hit the, the nail on the head, you know, yeah. it's positive, neutral and negative world. Um, we're out of the, the neutral zone now. Yeah. Uh, church isn't just viewed neutrally. Yeah. This also presents an opportunity. Yeah. You know, I asked before about the future of church planning, and I think generally uh, the future of pastoral work is we're not attracting men mm -hmm. to the pastorate, and it's because we're not we're not presenting it as a manly endeavor. Yep. I, I just wonder if, if seminaries that are losing all their students instead of uh, trying to figure out new ways to attract people to some wonderful academic pursuit, yeah, do the Shackleton thing. Yeah. Dangerous work. Right. People ain't going to like you. Right. Glory in heaven, maybe see a lot of glory right now. Yeah, but it seems to me that even in the re in the reform world, there's been a trend over the last say 20 years uh, to let kind of the tail wag the dog. So the seminary needs to keep its doors open, or it needs a larger student body, or whatever. So that means we need to figure out how to provide programs for lay people, provide programs for women, or whatever. And then, and then before you know it, um, we're accommodating these groups. Uh, more and more, and and eliminating kind of the, the bread and butter of what made a seminary a seminary, which is you know a, a finishing school for men who are going into the pastoral ministry. Yeah. And this is, of course, you know, assuming that we believe in a, in a male or you know an ordained male uh, clerical calling, yeah. as opposed to say you know egalitarian approaches and understandings. By the way, which is something to note. You know, uh, I've yet to find an example of, of a group that said, we want to uh, reach more people. That's why we're going to have women in, you know, pastoral ministry. Every instance I'm aware of where efforts have been made to make that occur, uh, the churches have gone into decline. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and women want men to lead yeah, the church. Yeah. This is like the, the dirty secret. Uh like when I was at Herbert Divinity School, which is, of course, obviously way over the top on egalitarianism, they can't even tell the difference between a human being and an animal anymore, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, there, this was something that would come up every once in a while in, in class, where you'd have these gals who were serving at a UCC church in New Hampshire or something like that, dwindling, dying, and uh, they... Uh, sometimes would complain that the women didn't like them because they were wanting a male pastor. You know? Yeah. So well, try that on when you get a call in the middle of the night and the guy's beating his wife. Yeah. Yeah. The police aren't going to get there for a while. Right. Right. You need men. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's stuff that, you know, just never gets brought up. But, you know, I've had uh, dangerous situations that I've had to enter into. Sounds like you have as well. Uh, and anyway, but that's a whole other conversation for the day. Now, what are some of the things that, you know, I think we've touched on them, but what are some things that you'd like to see kind of made more, I guess, uh, central when it comes to the work of church planting? You know, what are the things that you think we ought to do? Where do we go from here? That kind of stuff. So, you know, in various denominations, we'll have, uh, you know, evaluation centers. Yeah. You go in and you evaluate and see whether or not you got the right stuff. Um, and I've got my thoughts about how some of those work, but do you have any thoughts? Well, a lot of these centers are, they're, they're not necessarily bad. Like, uh, these have Anglican 1000, um, the PCA uh, assessment center, even Acts 29. Um, there's, there's good materials to draw from. There's good strategies for various things. 
But I would say this, and I would say this generally with, uh, with pastoral work, period. Um, people need to know more about what the church is. I, I remember when I, when I went to seminary, I went to a covenant seminary, and we covered um, worship in, in a, uh, a class that was on ecclesiology and eschatology. And I think we covered that for like one class. Wow. And you think about that. What yeah. does a pastor do? He gets up and he leads a service every week. I mean, that's like <laughs> the center of right. what you do. And it's kind of the, it's the center of what the church does. It worships. Right. And we, we study all this arid systematic theology. We take all these exegetical courses. We take a class that's partially on the church. And we spend a little bit of one day talking about worship and how to conduct right. a worship service. Right. So I, th- I think that's, that's definitely, I mean, because I think a lot of times church planners don't think that about the fact that they are pastors who are leading churches and that's what you want to do you're buying time to have a stable church yeah so so do you think it has you know I, I alluded to the connections to the end and to what's above so heaven and you know the Perusia you know the New Jerusalem um, I arrived at that just through independent study. You know, it's, it's, it, it, this is kind of the thing. So I, I've learned far more through my, by being an autodidact. Yeah. I've been in three graduate programs, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's been my independent study in my questioning and my reading and uh, my writing that have put me in, you know, in touch with things that have really been enriching in ministries. So, you know, it's because of what you're describing. I mean, I, I remember, well, you could talk a little bit about the historical critical method, which was just uh, a very thin approach to understanding scripture. But it was the rigor when I was, you know, studying for the ministry. And any attempt to think it in, you know, typological terms was dismissed. Yeah. And you bring up Paul and you said, but Paul did it. Yeah, he did. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, well, you're not Paul. Yeah. <laughs> it was only good for him. You know, well, what if we just stick with his? No. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing where, you know, if you try to find Christ in the Old Testament, then you're like doing something wrong. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. You have any thoughts on any of that kind of stuff? Uh, you want to reframe that? Well, I guess, kind of, I guess, I guess I'm, 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 I'm interested in how do we develop young men if we can't say, for example, uh, trust seminaries to do the work. Now, obviously, oh, yeah. there is, there, you know, there is the, the work of, of reforming the seminaries, which yeah. I think would be a great thing to do. Um, but they tend to be resistant. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely an advocate of, of seminary education for pastors. Um, how that occurs, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of new potential models. Some of the things I worry about, though, is, uh, you know, we take your languages. I, I'm, I'm not quite sure how you would do that partially or fully. Online. Oh, yeah. I think there is. I'm not saying we shouldn't have seminaries. And I'm not. My, my thought is, is, is how do we reform the seminaries? Yeah. So that we, we see some of the things that we've been talking about. So, you, you know, you just gave an example. You know, we spent a day at worship. Yeah. You know, what, 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 how, how did that happen? Uh, vital internships. Yeah. I'm going to say something kind of radical here. Sure. I suppose for, for um, seminary folk. But um, I, I'm not. I'm not an advocate of MDiv programs mm-hmm. at this point in time. Yeah, I, I would advocate for something like an MAET, so like a Master of Arts with exegetical. You get all your exegetical work done. Yeah, and then you go do a vital internship with a church. I think the LCMS does a pretty good job with with their four year program. Okay, so they got an MDiv program, but they actually have this vicarage year where you you don't go to seminary for a year. You actually go out in the field. You work with a seasoned pastor. You preach, you serve sacraments, do funerals, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, when I was at, at Covenant, I'd see guys working with the youth group, and they're cutting tops off of popsicles for the fireworks show. <laughs> I mean, something where you're doing visitation, right. you're preaching, you're, you're, you're going along with a pastor to, to visit the sick, um, you're serving sacraments, that kind of thing, uh, yeah. where, you, where you're actually doing the work of ministry. Let me jump in here. In... In Africa, um, where one of the places where the gospel is growing the quickest, um, I know specifically the country of Sierra Leone, as people have heard me say on this podcast multiple times, um, every unreached people group in Sierra Leone now has a rapidly growing Christian community in it. 
Okay. And now they do it through basically a house church model. They have no objection if the house church grows. Um, they actually distinguish three levels of churches, rabbit churches, lion churches, and elephant churches. Um, and uh, the, the goal actually, if you, if you have an elephant church, you want to have it with rabbit DNA. You want it reproducing quickly. But the, the way they develop leaders is they find people who are doing the job and then train them. They wait, they, you know, they don't, they don't send people off to training and then throw them in to see if they can do it. They find the people who are doing it, who can do it, who have demonstrated. I mean, th their church planning method is really very simple. So, external law, right? In, in reform circles. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, I actually rarely saw that with seminary students. Yeah. 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 What they, you know, in order to be a pastor in New Harvest Global Ministries, you have to plant four churches. If you planted four churches, they say, okay, you're obviously called to do this. You're obviously skilled at doing this. Let's give you the training that you need to lead these things. Well, you know, now I don't know that that model works here exactly, yeah. but I think that there's a lot of wisdom in finding the people who can do it before you send them off to seminary rather than sending them off to seminary and then discovering that they can't do it. Yeah, I've seen that too often. I know exactly what you're getting at. Now, related to that, uh, you know, we, we've uh, developed our approach to educating men for ministry kind of in a parallel manner with what we see uh, with other professions. Mm -hmm. You know, there's bachelor pro, there's a bachelor's program, there's a master's program, and you know that's that's perfectly understandable. But um, when we think about what does it mean to be a practitioner? Um, I think, getting back to the subject of the MDiv, so generally speaking, that's 90 credit hours plus, which is basically three years full-time. Um, I don't know if that's still the case. Maybe there's been some things that have occurred in curricular, you know, curricular, uh, in curriculum to shorten things up or whatever. But a lot of that was kind of trying to replicate, you know, the real world in a classroom environment. They take the same course on preaching. Uh, you're sitting there. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad course to have, but it's but you're trying to create a church environment, churchly environment, in a classroom setting and preach. Right. Um, the art of preaching is something that you develop over time. It's not just simply studying for a test and getting it right the first time and acing it. Right. You learn the art. Uh, but there are a range of things like that in many MDiv programs. I think we could maybe cut off a year, maybe even more, uh, focus on languages, focus on systematics, focus on history, focus on ecclesiology, things that we have received from the past, uh, and just say there's a whole other side to this that you're only going to be able to learn out in the, out in the field with seasoned man overseeing your work yeah. and that's just the way it's going to be uh, anyway that's a thought. well they used to have those uh, BD programs back in the day Westminster had them back in the 30s and 40s Bachelor of Divinity and you'd, right. you'd go pastor a church I, I wonder because uh, I, when I was in seminary they would allow very small numbers of students that did not have bachelor's degrees that they thought were very gifted to come in and, right. and do the master's program and I noticed a lot of them were tradespeople. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think I think we need experienced men in the ministry. Yeah. They've done things in life. They didn't just go to college and then, you know, they spent a year working at a fast food restaurant or a barista and then, yeah. then suddenly they're thrust in as a pastor over people doing things. Right. Sometimes right. significant things and there's they have little understanding of what it's like to, to get a paycheck or right. or even to do payroll for, yeah. for a business. Right. Yeah, I, I think that this is something perhaps that may sound, I don't know, uh, it, like it's a problem, but I, I do think that a pastor who's maybe got a church of 120, which is, you know, basically a church that's healthy enough to support him, uh, has more in common with the guy who owns the hardware store down the street than a, a typical, you know, employee sitting in a cubicle in XYZ Corp. Yeah. Because that guy who's running the hardware store has 
it's, it's got to oversee the whole thing. It's not just got a very narrow range of work like you have in XYZ Corp that you're just responsible for this. He's got to think about, you know, working with lots of people, customers, plus employees, that kind of thing. So I, I think just the, the, the sense of, of having a, a kind of a sense of the whole uh, is something that perhaps kind of is a touch point between small business owners and pastors. Yeah, and I think I think it'd be good to have uh, vital experiential touch points. You know, the I did construction. That's why I went back to college. Yeah, <laughs> I got tired of my hands bleeding all the time. <laughs> um, but but it enables me to to, to yeah. talk to tradespeople. It's like yeah, I, I did teardowns, yeah. put up drywall, right. did sheetrock. You know, yeah, mixed fiberglass and a wheelbarrow without a mask you know? <laughs> <laughs> or gloves. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I did I did that stuff too, and I agree. I did, and when blue collar guys uh, encounter a pastor who is able to not just sort of awkwardly relate to them, but actually say, I remember when I did that sort of thing, or I really respect what you're doing and mean it, that kind of stuff, because you understand it. Yeah. It goes a long way toward uh, bringing those guys around. Yeah. Yeah. And then even, uh, you know, we've talked about the external and and internal call Glenn was talking about with Africa. I think there's some parts of that. I noticed um, in my seminary experience, most guys had internal calling. They felt inwardly like I'm yeah. called to ministry, but yeah. there was very little external input. Right. There wasn't older men or pastors in their life that said, you know, you definitely should think about this. this you seem called to this. It was Well, you think about callings in scripture, you know, very often they're, they're, they're external yeah. and they're resistant. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I mean, historically, right? That's right. Bringing, uh, you know, guys into the ministry in chains, you know. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, I do not want to be bishop. Yes. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, Anyway, so that's a whole fun conversation as well. Glenn, do you have any thoughts? Uh, you know, we've been kind of dominating the conversation for a little while, but you always have a lot of rich things to add. Uh, we're kind of getting to the end of the, of the show here. Uh, anything you want to kind of introduce uh, our, our listeners to related to these themes? Well, I, I think that one of the things that we also need to be thinking about is how we empower the laity to do ministry. Because it's through doing that that we find leaders and we find that that uh, carpenter who may in fact have the calling toward heading toward right. the pastorate. Right. You know, so I, I think that that one of the things that is missing in a lot of churches is there, there's a kind, this is also part of secularization here, um, there, there's a kind of professionalization that takes place where um, people, just like, you know, they don't change their own oil anymore, they go to the rapid oil change place, uh, they're subcontracting out the spiritual training of their kids to the youth pastor. They're subcontracting out evangelism to the pastor. What evangelism you have is gagging and dragging people to church so that the pro can actually win them to Christ. You know, those kinds of things. I, I think that that a an increased focus on raising up leaders in the congregation, training the congregation, it, you know, it doesn't even necessarily have to be people going that, that have the potential to go into ministry. Maybe it's just training them. How do you be a Christian electrician? What does that mean? What does that look like? That, that equipping role is one of the things that I think is missing. And um, I think that that is also a, uh, uh, one of the major problems uh, in general with the church, uh, yeah, that that we simply don't seem to recognize that as part of the the role of the pastor and teacher. Right, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Right. So, Garrett, uh, we're kind of getting to the end here. Is there anything that you thought before we started that, I got to talk about this, you haven't had a chance to kind of squeeze in? No, we rolled over some broad ground. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Anyway, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me here at your church and for the conference that your church is sponsoring in. Anyway, uh, Lord bless you in all you're doing. And it's great to see 
that the church. You all as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, we're in the south there. Right. But uh, just one last thought as we're leaving. So maybe people who live in the Austin area and never heard of your church, tell us quickly. You know, the name, the location, how to how to connect with you, that kind of stuff. Yeah, we're uh, we're in Buda, uh, Kings Cross Reformed Church. If you go online, we're at kingscrossatx.org. You can find all the information on the on the church there. All right, excellent. And how long has the church been here? Uh, I think we're in our 22nd month. 22nd month? Yeah, and not, not even two years ago. Yeah, and it's grown so so uh, quickly that you have just hired an assistant pastor. We did. Yeah, yeah. so great stuff, great stuff. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's great. Anyway, thanks for listening to this episode of the Theology Podcast. You've made it all the way to the end, and you get to hear me talk about Patreon. Patreon's a marvelous uh, platform, and we've had a number of people recently who come on as supporters, and we want to thank those folks for doing that. Uh, Glenn and I and Tom, we we don't take any money directly ourselves, but uh, there are people that need to get paid uh, to produce this show, and uh, your gifts uh, help to pay them. So thank you very much for that. There's a link in the show notes if you'd like to learn more, and there are some perks to doing it. So one of the perks is uh, you get to see the show or hear the show before other people we have an early release on every episode on Patreon. Anyway, that's it for now. Thanks a lot, and bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy the book by Jason Cherry, The Making of Evangelical Spirituality, available on Amazon.